Okay, so uh, welcome to this session. Uh, as usual, we will start the first few minutes in silent meditation, settling our body in a posture that is comfortable. And then the main thing is to settle the mind, which we will try to do by letting the mind focus on a natural rhythm of breathing. That might help in slowing down the mind with the pace of a natural breath. So you are already familiar with meditation, but those who are new, it means settling the body in a calm, comfortable position, and then settling the mind on a chosen object. Here we are using the breath, the two in a natural rhythm. So while focusing on the breath, which will have just happen on its own without trying to regulate or control it, let the mind just be aware of the natural breathing. And being aware of that breathing, breathing, try to do so with a sense of delight, some intentional focus, attention, and try to do so with as much clarity, both of the object as well as the mind. In terms of the subjective mind being clear, it means try to have a good grabs or grip on the object. So being with a natural breath, alertly, attentively, ardently. Maybe it's good to visualize the merit field. If you are comfortable, think of the Buddha in the space above oneself, surrounded by Buddhas, other Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Arhats, higher beings, like that. Or else you could recall the historical Buddha, picture him in front of him, 
in front of yourself. Think of his qualities, his acts, his deeds, and the influence that he has had with the world since then. In the scriptures, it's even claimed that the teachings affected other world systems as well. And then, yes, each one of ourselves being surrounded by fellow sentient beings, all in human forms, yet undergoing their own respective sufferings on top of the common sufferings in some suffering existence. Thinking of them in human form, but both as a auspicious condition for them to be born as humans. Next life and many lives following that, but also as a convenience, imagining them following the teaching, following the pujas that we are doing. So let's say this homage the Shakyamuni together while retaining that visualization, maybe even thinking if you are comfortable, think of light rays emanating from the heart of the Buddha to all of us, sentient beings, the mere touch of which brings joy, happiness, peace inside. And really, in these, we say these lines together. Maybe try to retain this attitude of attaining, aspiring to attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings of a while, supported by one's awareness of their kindness, their similarity with us, as well as their kindness in so many various ways. In a way, if we care to look at, we will see that a single time goes by when sentient beings are not teaching us something good. Whether that is through their bad actions or good actions, or their way of dealing with their relatives, many of the things that we know have come from people that we do not know, because they have taught their relatives, their sons, children, their friends, and they taught to our friends who taught us. Why so many can, can be traced back infinitely into numerous sentient beings. And that too is not just limited to being human, even animals. No matter whether they cannot speak human language through their behavior, through their actions, way of relating, how 
their way of relating to do you. Changes over time, depending on how you behave with them. All these are teachings that we can receive from. On top of all these, just think of how, in what ways, the great compassionate Buddha is a field of merit and good qualities versus the ocean for us. He a field of merit and good qualities in the sense that we receive or we can create innumerable merits and generate good qualities with Buddha as the focus. Be there focusing on his journey on the path, his fruition state, what that all meant to us, precious teaching that's still within us and has effect on us. They all came from their training as bodhisattvas. Their training as bodhisattva began with the cultivation of great compassion, followed by bodhicitta, complemented by the wisdom of understanding emptiness. These are all due to sentient beings. Without sentient beings and their sufferings, as much as they may be unbearable to them, without these, there cannot be great compassion. Without great compassion, there cannot be bodhicitta. And without that, there cannot be Buddhahood. Without that, we cannot have this wondrous, wonderful, marvelous teaching. These are all directly or indirectly due to sentient beings. So in both short term, long term basis, we can see how sentient beings always benefit us as a way of repaying their kindness. Let's as well feel inspired and encouraged to follow the path of the Buddha. Even if it means generating contrived great compassion, contrived bodhicitta, and doing our best in coming up with as close in understanding of emptiness. Let's dedicate this session to this effect of making us 
For the sake of all sentient beings. And in the meantime, as much inspired, encouraged, and determined to do our utmost in being of benefit to sentient beings, at the very least, keeping ourselves a behavior I wasn't so sure the bell, the first bell was strong enough. But the second one didn't turn out stronger. <laughs> okay. I have this backlog of questions to deal with. So, so we we'll push through the text a little bit from where we left. See, we didn't go any much <laughs> far. Much far. I was talking, I was looking very, very down. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> Maybe the first, only the first paragraph. Oh, okay. So now we're looking at page 279. By the way, yes, my greetings to friends and uh, supporters in, in Singapore for their. We are, we are? Oh, you are right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But even the previous one didn't look like familiar. <laughs> are we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. It's 282. Okay. By the way, I wanted to comment on this, uh, on the the opening lines, the very last paragraph on page 281, where you see the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is a stable basis for the cultivation of excellent qualities. That part is very essential, and we need to have, as time passed by, stronger, 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 and uh, understanding and clarity. Regard to that. Uh, by the way, this is in the context of clear light, right? 
the mind is clear light, so clear in the sense of clear and cognizant nature. But in other contexts, everything, every phenomena is also talked about in the sense of being clear light. That's the best translation uh, we can come up for the Tibetan term of cell. Uh, is light cell is clear, so how, what else can we come up with? Uh, but when we speak of mind being clear and cognizant nature, then we are speaking of the mental quality, mental quality of being able to reflect things as well as subjectively relate with that, with a, with a very different tinge of, uh, what do you call, uh, relationship where there is something that cannot be found on physical things. There's this outreach there, very different outreach from the mind side towards the object. That's which comes in the form of thinking, receive, perceiving, cognizing, imagining, conceiving, etc. And that's something very unique to mind. And because of that, we can associate these qualities to those who are possessed of mind. And, and that's by virtue of having the mind and the mind doing those things. Because of that, the person or the being can be said to be doing that. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any such action associated with the beings or associated with beings without minds. <laughs> Bereft of mind, beings are no beings. <laughs> they turn into things. Not beings, but things, right? So living beings are due to the mind, which is so fortunately in its basic nature, clear and cognizant, undefined, on the basis of which we can build good qualities. And the defilements would only have to kind of latch onto, just barely latch onto, hold on to the mind, ever ready to slip off. <laughs> because there's no way it can it can latch on to because of its being uh, and and kind of going deep into the nature of the mind because of being fundamentally rooted on or grounded on a misperception, baseless notion. So when we speak of every phenomenon being clear light, there we are speaking of its emptiness nature. Right? And there we speak of it's being clear, clear of a defilement, which is not there. <laughs> clear, we speak of clear, usually we speak of natural, sometimes the phenomena are phenomena, including ourselves, everyone, has, are, are already, or has ever been, always been in a state of natural nirvana. <laughs> we call that natural nirvana. Uh, but, but more, more 
specifically it is about freedom from the stains that would be if it were to be inherently existent. In which case, the stain would be so hard, fast, it can never be cleaned off. But luckily, everything, including beings, mind included, are free from such a, otherwise would be defilement in its nature, if it were to be inherently existent. So that's why inherent existence, though not existent, is referred to as a defilement, of which we speak of everything being totally, originally, primordially, always free from. And in that context, we speak of them as clear light. But in English, when you say clear light, the light part becomes so obvious that you don't know what to do, what to do with it. In Tibetan, we just casually say, everything is clear light. We kind of state, go to, state away, go to its empty nature. Empty of nature. Never stop to think over what the clear light has to do with here, <laughs> what the light has to do with here. <laughs> so there's this expression, already free, right? Some There's a book even, right? Already free. That's what everything is. Everything is already free uh, in its very nature of inherent existence. And thus, all these possibilities of changing, improving, and at the same time, succumbing to conditions, adverse conditions, is because of its being free, first and foremost. But on the basis of this, this nature of mind, we have to also additionally think of its being of a quality that would always require a prior moment of my mind for its for its production, for its coming into being, for its coming to pass. And that part is, as I was suggesting last time also, using what His Holiness proposes in terms of doing meditation on to become more and more experientially uh, acquainted with that mere, clear, cognizant nature of mind without necessarily having to have any kind of a mental content. So, and from that possibility that maybe that it is distinct from physical things. It is not by itself a physical property, but rather a mental quality of its own that's capable of that's capable of if we for other forces, capable of even uh, sustaining, thriving, without gross physical bodies. So in this regard, 
Oh yeah. That's another. Yeah. In this regard, I wanted to. I have shared this with you a long time ago, but still, I want to just uh, just uh, share it here, and it would be good to give it a thought. Drawing as it is from modern science. Here, Dr. Sampanya has this to say. He was recalling a symposium where he happened to be with Professor Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, serving, I think, as chair of a department that used to be headed by Ian Stevenson. So he was saying, at this symposium where we launched our study, they had a number of experts discussing the whole issue of consciousness. This is Dr. Sampania saying in, to this uh, radio host of the NPR. One of these people was Professor Bruce Gresson, who is at the University of Virginia. He mentioned something that I think explained this very well, this issue of consciousness. Not just issue, but the problem of consciousness. <laughs> Which has always been a problem <laughs> for those who are looking for problems, <laughs> those who are looking for something good that has always been a source of that. <laughs> and some have even gone to that such a length as having become complete Buddha because of this. So that, it has never been any problem. <laughs> so it, it's, it's dependent on perspective. Okay, let's for now call it problem of consciousness. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's re recalling what Professor Gre uh, Grayson, Bruce Grayson, uh, mentioned at the time. He said, look at the state of physics at the end of the 19th century. Many eminent physicists, physicists like Lord Kelvin believed that physics had all the answers to all the problems in the universe. In the universe. How big is the universe? Uh, <laughs> or is it just one universe or multiverse? What? So he was saying, he believed that physics had all the problems, had all the answers to all the problems in the universe. What was left were just teeny tiny minor details. <laughs> minor details that hadn't been sorted out. So then, how would that be all answers? Right? Anyway, the, new, the then new phenomenon was discovered, new observations that came about through physics. At the turn of the 20th century, that Newtonian physics was no longer able to account for. That was the beginning of ultimately a new branch of physics called quantum physics. Now apply that to the state of play with the human mind and consciousness. Our assumption that human mind or consciousness and the brain are the same thing, or the property and the property owner, <laughs> but boiling down to the brain ultimately, because the property is owned by the property owner. <laughs> Once the property owner says, no, no, then it's gone. <laughs> so. Now apply that to the state of play with human mind and consciousness. Our assumptions 
that human mind, consciousness, and the brain are the same thing, work for the majority of cases. Majority of the cases while we are alive on this very gross level of conceptuality. Majority of the cases in the sense when humans are alive, animals are alive and are living not on a subtle state of mind, but on gross state of mind. There, the grosser the consciousness, the more dependency it is, it has, it is on the body. In the, so our, our assumptions that the human mind, consciousness, and the brain are the same thing work for the majority of cases. In the same way, nowadays, if we use Newtonian physics for most things on planet Earth that we are involved with, that's fine. We don't have to apply quantum laws. They work fine. It's only when we go to that extreme that those laws no longer hold. Well, the same thing seems to be true with human mind and consciousness. In the majority of cases, it's fine. But when you go to extreme cases, for example, when you study consciousness, when people are going through clinical death, when the brain has stopped functioning, you suddenly see that these notions that we have, that mind and brain are the same thing, may no longer hold true. Therefore, it may be that we are on the verge of discovering a whole new science, but that will be possible if science adopts a new method of doing so. <laughs> Maybe use more of IA, and then eventually into ethereal, more ethereal, more surreal, whatever you call it, IA or AI or whatever. <laughs> and eventually come up with a consciousness mechanism. Anyway, well, the same thing seems to be true with the human mind and consciousness. In the majority of cases, it's fine, but when we go to extreme cases, for example, when you study consciousness, when people are going through clinical death, when the brain has stopped functioning, you suddenly see that these notions that we have, that mind and brain are the same thing, may no longer hold true. Therefore, it may be that we are on the verge of discovering a whole new science, a science that helps us to understand what the human mind and consciousness is. In the same way that in the 20th century, we had to come, up, come out with a whole new branch of physics that explains things in those extremes at the subatomic level. I think it may be that if these experiments work, that, that's what we are heading towards, which we are very, very excited about. Of course. Who knows what the potential will be? By the way, Dr. Sempernia has long been involved in this. He's a hardcore scientist as well as a physician. And he has launched this global project called AWARE, where AWARE, the last RE part of that, has to do with resuscitation. So using resuscitation. This is even in the health departments. The resuscitation has taken a whole new turn. It's much harder. It's, it's, it, it's done for much more longer period because they have been successful in, and then they do not know how far they can push. So, so there have been ex cases of people being 
people regaining consciousness after way beyond the what used to be the limit of potential successful yeah resuscitation and he himself is has launched this global uh project of aware and he has already come out with maybe many books but one that i saw called erasing death at least there what he was doing was i mean how else what else would scientists using material instruments could do they would put images maybe on in in a operation theater or any other place not any other place but mostly operation theaters where uh, their subjects would be likely to die and experiment then so using those spaces they have placed some uh what do you call objects or designs or whatever which could be seen only from above not from below and at the very least he had he had two subjects who had uh died clinically and had come back of the two oh yeah they, they, i think I, i think yeah at the very least there may be many many of them but two of them were able to when coming back they were able to affirm that they did, did have out of body experience but unfortunately that didn't happen in the operation theater but somebody else, somewhere else they couldn't have that uh affirmation of seeing those things but at the very least uh one of them was willing to share and did share and then was able to say what he saw and it all were confirmed except he couldn't say that yes those things which could have been seen only from above were seen because people didn't die there <laughs> or those who died didn't come back right and so there were no reports but at least there was one case yeah there was one case of, of the two who were who confirmed that they had out of body experience one shared and he was able to say what happened and that was all confirmed and also there are cases of people getting tattoos and then in the course of getting tattoos they pass out you call that right pass out and then some go for some time maybe 10 15 minutes but they would have a whole world of experience they would have all they would have toured the whole city in 10 minutes and came back and then it is the custom for the tattoo workers not to work on them when they are when they have passed out yeah and they would they would wait and that was something expected that they would pass out and they they would wait but then and then when this person gained consciousness they, boy you were gone for 10 minutes just 10 minutes i was all over the city I was outside you show up and going in so such a speed yeah so i know someone who shared this with me and so it's 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 a first person account 
that's why I have the confidence of just touching on it. So, but we don't have to really stretch this in, at, I mean, at such a length. Just look at ourselves. We are ourselves a very good example of, or very good evidence for, for having been or, or for having come from somewhere before our birth, before our so-called birth. D-O-V Date of birth. Yeah, dop, dop, dop. In Tibetan, dop, dop means something else. If you just say dop, it means one thing. If you say dop, dop, it means another thing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but His Holiness very often points out the fact that we have inclinations and dispositions so distinct from each other and even among so-called identical twins now the so-called identical twins are not not no more identical right totally yeah they have scientifically even proven that even dna is could be different let alone environment dealing with them but even dna is could be so now the so-called identical is not identical, but coming from the same egg, right? That would be identical. That, that would be, that's the new definition of identical twins. Not because they are totally DNA-wise identical. <laughs> but even, even among them, they are so different when it comes particularly to their mind and some to the extent of how they behave. Physically, they may look different, I mean, almost exactly, but subtle details of the DNA now they have found are different. But on a grosser level, they may physically look same. But when their mind comes, what they like, what they dislike, what they are inclined to, what they are disposed to, how much of anger somebody has, how, how much inclined they are towards, oh, in that world of mind, there's a whole difference there. And we are saying, no, that gross body has come from before. They have come from parents. The, so, the, 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 the source of it. But even that was not enough. The nutrients that we kept getting were becoming part and parcel of our grosser body. That's something that has a, a limited starting time. But the mind we are claiming has come from before. Of course, together with the subtlest body, subtlest energy, yeah. although not touched in the sutra level. <laughs> but mind we are talking of, and that's where we see the whole world of difference there. Spizolinus was saying that when it comes to discussing about the dispositions, mental dispositions, it would be hard not to at least touch on the possibility of having come from before. Because that's very hard to explain solely on the basis of this life. 
That's why Freud came to such desperate conclusions. Everything started from your parents, your, they are to be blamed. Poor parents, they suffered a lot. And some even try to look back hard and they kind of find something out of nowhere. <laughs> and then poor parents, they were, they were suffering. <laughs> uh, that, that should be very difficult for, for, for parents. Like they've given birth to some child, just it's almost like a new burden, <laughs> a new, new source of problem for them. Who knows what, when things will come up. What will come up? So the stability, the stability part of that is not just that it is clean, uh, clear and cognizant in nature, but it's stable in that because of its being clean, uh, clear and cognizant in nature, it is distinct from physical bodies no matter how much they may relate with them, interact with them, uh, depending on the grossness of it. Nonetheless, when it comes to the actual, uh, what do you call, the, for lack of a better word, substance of it, for the actual entity of it, it's so distinct. It's so distinct that it, it should uh, have Yeah, it should have its own, what do you call, uh, prior entities uh, to kind of account for it. And then there being a prior a continuity is to be inferred from the way we behave mentally, how over age we, it's almost like over age, uh, when over time, over time, we begin to then have those bhaktas, uh, have those potentials kind of then mature or act, become active, which at that very subtle level remains dormant. And that's how people think that we are born. Uh, what was that? Yes, double rasa. Uh, Mm, and, yeah, I like a slate, but what do you call it? Empty slate? Clean slate, yeah. That, that is an ex, another expression. Yeah, empty, clear slate. And they say that whatever you teach, they're going to pick up. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Or oh, some have a hard time. <laughs> learning things. Yeah, not everyone uh, progresses, not everyone flourishes the same, no matter how. It may depend on how they, how much they have. In the case of animals, there's more possibility of them being easily uh, maneuvered uh, and uh, possibility of outcome being what is expected. Because usually they are very impulsive. They, they may be intentional, but quite impulsive. They're kind of just following their impulses. And depending on how much you put them into physical distress or whatnot, there's this likelihood of almost 
able to infer what kind of impulses that man would put. That's not the case with the humans. Even with the animals also, the, the outcome is not always guaranteed. Yeah, and then when we speak of prodigies, uh, like this, it is very difficult to explain. And it's also understandable. Even if we see signs of possible signs of traces coming from before, very, very few or, or if at all any we find anyone with uh, with, with with an area level uh, of maturation with an area level of qualities. That's because people have not been there. <laughs> okay, so so. Could someone tell me where was I? That's number two. Okay. Yeah, let me recapitulate a little bit. There's no basis for limitlessly boiling water. Now, on to page 282. Like, excellent qualities cannot be uh, cannot be cultivated limitlessly on an unstable basis. So that part of the stability is also an additional part. Although we tend to, we seem to be saying that it's by virtue of the mind being clear and cognizant that it is necessarily stable. But the stability has also to do with the continuum, the continuum of it and never giving in or giving up to any forces whatsoever. It is so stable. So that part we have to assert it. Right? The, 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 there is no such thing that mind's continuum would ever be severed, would ever cease. Although even in Buddhist scriptures, you come across arhats without remainder, with remainder, without remainder, and what do the arats without remainder uh, become? Virtually nothing. They completely become completely become extinct, with the mind included. That's a teaching that Buddha gave. Only provisionally, not to be taken totally literally. <laughs> now the reason is, now the question is, why did it teach so? And what would be a condition, what would be a situation when such a teaching would be appropriate? How would someone in such a situation would benefit? So that's something to think about, and we can discuss sometime later. <laughs> By the way, this has become a topic of 
out. The liberation in in a book written by the late His Holiness Pope John Paul II. He wrote a book called Threshold of Hope. There he, he mentioned about this part of the Buddhist teachings and practices being wonderful, but ultimately all it seeks is complete extinction. And he quotes these sources. This is quite a topic. I mean, it cannot be denied that there is such a teaching. It has to be understood contextually, and it is a provisional teaching. So there were many re rejoinders from many Buddhists. <laughs> Likewise, it's the case with emptiness also. I even heard His Holiness share this. He was uh, I think maybe somebody have, somebody may have related this to His Holiness. I don't know if someone who actually said this actually was with His Holiness, but some may, someone may have related this to His Holiness, where he, His Holiness says that, oh, I've heard that, the, that the somebody said that, yes, Buddhist teachings are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful teachings. Eventually, they will speak of emptiness, which is like completely undoing all of them. It's almost like someone is so meticulously working on something, like Saint Mandala. And then say, after all, all these things are emptiness. You just rub it. Now you don't know anything. And his audience says that that's not what emptiness means. Because we advocate emptiness on the basis of things being dependently originated. So we do not deny dependent origination. When you affirm something being dependently originated, dependently arisen, we are affirming its existence. On that very basis, and with that as the reason, we are establishing its emptiness. So if at all emptiness should mean anything, would be even more affirm the conventionality of things the functionality of things, on the basis of which then speak of an additional quality that reinforces it. There will be an understanding, correct understanding, or, or on the right track of understanding of emptiness. So this is very es essential to remember for ourselves too also. Sometimes it will seem like, oh, everything is em em empty merely labeled. Someone could be even labeled as Buddha and become Buddha. Oh, I do not have to really work that hard. <laughs> I could just spend enough money and talk, into, talk, into, talk to people into calling me just Buddha and, and, and establishing it, and then who knows, I will eventually become Buddha just by that. Otherwise, how would the historical Buddha who taught, who worked that hard who taught this wonderful teaching could be mere level. So there's this need of really being able to see appearance and emptiness together. 
we tend to, uh, until then, we tend to just merely alternate between the two. If we affirm things being empty, we are not, we totally oblivious of things being dependently originated. And think of things being dependently originated, it's almost like affirming things being inherently existent in their way. And just totally forget about it. Never able to bring the two together and then see them as exactly the same. See them as the things are empty because they are dependently arisen. Dependently arisen. Things are dependently arisen because they are empty of inherent existence. Right? One reinforcing the other. In a way, they cannot they cannot be without each other. So the reason why I bring this up in connection with this is while I was speaking of the clear red nature, clear red nature, both in terms of the subjective mind as well as of everything, including mind, of their being this in the nature of totally in the nature of being lacking inherent existence. Okay, so we will move on to number two. The mind can become habituated in excellent qualities that can be built up cumulatively. The reason for that is the excellent qualities may seem like depending on mistaken projections like inherently existent permanence, etc., but they do not necessarily have to. Rather, they will thrive better and flourish more if we could bring in the view of emptiness into play with them, because we would have even a very more convincing and stronger reason to be compassionate by virtue of seeing things being inherent, lacking inherent existence, whereas people are, or beings are, stuck with their grasping at inherent existence, because of which all the afflictions come about, and, and due to which they suffer. So likewise, with all other excellent qualities, they, be that of insight nature or of emotional compassion, kindness, uh, method, nature, uh, method drive paths, those excellent qualities, including uh, confidence, trust, tolerance, etc., you name it, all of them, uh, of course, at our ordinary level, they may be based on our, of our, on, on our apprehension of things being inherently existent, and then kind of generate those qualities on the basis of that. But uh, that doesn't have to be that way. And these qualities would even more thrive and flourish, as I said, if it could be grounded on an understanding of things being merely dependently related with not the slightest iota of any inherent existence. That's because of its being backed by truth or grounded on truth. So that's 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 the... That's the inherent nature of inherent quality of truth, which is inherent, lacking inherent existence. <laughs> so using inherent in both conventional and ultimate nature in one sentence, right? 
<laughs> so don't be so hard on the word of inherent existence. Be hard on the grasping at inherent existence. Somehow with this computer, it's behaving weird. Okay. The mind can become habituated to excellent qualities that can be built up cumulatively. In a way, like the afflictions have become habituated with the mind and have built up cumulatively. But the difference here is, in the case of the afflictions, because of being rooted grounded in mistaken perception, uh, they can be removed, uh, no matter how entrenched they may be. But the, with the excellent qualities, the more you train in them and habituate in them and be kind of, uh, be witness to the truth of it, then the more stronger it, it becomes and uh, no force can ever expose it because there's nothing to be exposed. And 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 that kind of a uh, what do you call grounded groundedness on truth uh, kind of goes along with the nature of the mind in being in 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 cultivating these qualities and even almost like welcoming them into the nature of the mind itself. It could become so what do you call habituated in in a much stronger in a much, uh, much more sustainable uh, way, then even afflictions would have become, even up to now, from time immemorial. So that's by virtue of the fact that they are uh, backed by truth. They are rooted on on the truth. But we have to work on them, right? Merely understanding them. It's not enough. We have to build the strength of it and then kind of make it a part and almost like a, I wouldn't even like to call it second nature, even almost like the nature of the mind itself. Then, yes, the, the, the strength of the truth will shine out in being such a force that no, no afflictions, no distortions, can ever take it down or expose it. There's nothing to be exposed, so no distortions can ever take it down. It will only gain more strength. The mind can become habituated to excellent qualities that can be built up cumulatively. Excellent mental qualities can be built up gradually without having to begin anew each time with focus on developing, developing them. Well, that is the case with any mind, it seems like. It seems like. But on the basis of its being uh, not just excellent, but being grounded on truth, uh, it, it gives it an added, mm, what do you call, added merit uh, to be built cumulatively to such a state that it can never be it can never be undermined and it can never you call it decrease. Each time the bar is raised, he or she, oh, what is the okay? A, a high jumper cannot develop his 
or her ability limitlessly. Each time the bar is raised, he or she must cover the same distance he jumped before, plus some more. The mind nature is different. So, yeah, you, in the scriptures, we speak of this analogy. What do you call that aspect of run, running, jumping, whatever you have to do? No, no, no. But before you do that, what is Running stuff? Somehow this word has always evaded me. <laughs> I mean, when you say it, it is like, of course, how, what else would you say? I call it running start. Yeah, so the mind would have to do a running start in the initials, but once it picks up the momentum, eventually it doesn't even need a running start. It could be sleeping and then boom, boom compassion right, at its full strength would be able to come up. But it has to be developed uh, and sustained for some time. And eventually, the momentum picks up. That's not the case with, with anything physical. A high jumper cannot develop his or her ability limitlessly. Yeah, by the way, I was commenting about the limitless thing also. It almost seems like afflictions could also be seen too. In the in the syllogism that we use, there's one thing, one catch there, and you could either say this doesn't apply to the afflictions. The term yunden, same thing yunden, which it is the quality of mind. You could either either say it is the quality of the mind. Just as afflictions are quality of the mind, likewise compassion is quality of the mind. So merely being a quality of the mind, if it makes things, gives that advantage of being developed limitlessly, then even the afflictions can be. But then that same expression, quality, could be called excellent quality or, or correct quality, which then doesn't apply to the afflictions. But by now, for now, I want to settle that, uh, yes, even afflictions, unless we are careful, could be developed limitlessly. There could be no bounds for how, how strong we could be driven by the afflictions and how strong they can grow. Our bodies may win, may uh, become weak and whatnot, but untrained mind unless we take special effort in addressing it, can remain untrained and can even become stronger. There are evidences such that. But then in the case of the excellent qualities, uh, so I was saying that this disability of developing a limitless is of course there. I was saying that this understanding of limitless uh, has nothing to do with some kind of a bar, right? And kind of a, but has to do with, uh, has to do with uh, developing it to such an extent that you can you can understand its limit. You can you you can set a limit to its development, uh, be that in the sense of expansiveness or in the sense of depth, whatnot. Uh, 
so it can be developed to, to such an extent where you cannot fathom that that it has now hit hit the wall. Then it's, I think, that fulfills the criteria of, of being limitless. That's how I understand it. Not using the usual criteria of limitless, right? In the sense of having, in in the sense that it can, it has still room to grow. Not in that sense necessarily. It could be true for trainers until becoming Buddhas, but once you have become Buddha, you cannot say that you are now there's there's more room for your compassion to grow. But the compassion is itself is limitless. Developed even at that time, in that there is no way you could uh, set a limit in terms of its expense, its depth. There's no way you can ever fathom it. So that's how it's a sign of being developed yeah, limitlessly. But not that they have still more room to grow. That somebody's some 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 other Buddha's compassion is has grown more than the other Buddha. That's not the case. A day old Buddha and a thousand years old Buddha, their compassion is safe. Yeah. And in a way they have they would have mingled in some some kind of a same it, it, it's it's quite interesting to imagine why would it be like being in the midst of Buddhas. Including yourself. There will be complete harmony and no secrecy. <laughs> no, the, no, would they have to ever, ever worry about anything? It's just spontaneous. But in terms of their mental development, it's like if they were to look, if, if they were to have the same facial expressions, facial look, then it would be the same person. There will be no way you can tell one from a, from the other. <laughs> that okay, I will go there. <laughs> so that's what I meant by limitless. Okay, so I'll I'll leave it there. Each okay, each time the bar is raised, he or she must cover the same distance. He jumped before, plus more. The mind's nature is different. The energy from cultivating a quality one day remains so that if that same quality is cultivated the next day, cultivated the next day, not next week, at least when we are training. When we have made, had lots of headway and have reached a stage of stability and stage of, yes, yeah, stage stability like the river Arya being. Then yes, their compassion. Nor would they not train in their compassion for any X amount of days. But at the same time, there would there would be no such thing as coming back, right? In losing their compassion, only grow. Next day, it builds on what was previously accomplished without having to re-establish it. We do not need to exert the same degree of energy to get to the same level on the second day.
And that same effort will serve to increase that excellent quality. In a way, it is very true in our life, in our ordinary life also. Even day-to-day -day things matter. If we keep on thinking of somebody's hurt or whatnot, the anger just keeps growing. If we kind of restrain ourselves and think of the uselessness of it one day and the second day, third day, yes, you can virtually say that the anger has grown smaller or weaker than the previous day. You could say that. That's very true. We do not need to exert the same degree of energy to get to the same level on the second day. And, this, that, and this, that same effort will serve to increase that excellent quality. Of course, this requires consistent training on our part. Otherwise, our spiritual muscles will atrophy. <laughs> this is a scientific word here. <laughs> what, he, what is it doing in, in the middle of this? <laughs> but if we practice regularly, our energy can be directed to enhancing the excellent qualities continuously until the point where they become so familiar that they become so familiar that they are natural and spontaneous. Yeah, there is one question from last week, not last week, way before that. I think. Someone asked, yeah, so here he or she is referring to last week. Last week you mentioned, but this is maybe last month or last. You mentioned emptiness as an object is a very strong antidote in working the mind. Can you help to give an example in our daily life on how we can apply? Yeah, in this regard, I want to share something. First, uh, we have to also work our way to understanding emptiness correctly and exactly the way it should be. And that involves progressing kind of going in stages. But nonetheless, this topic about emptiness, how it is very crucial, has to do with how all of all of our afflictions arise from projecting some kind of a solidity, some kind of objectivity to the object be that in the light of being good or be that in the light of being bad, etc. But nonetheless, involving some kind of exaggeration and in the course of doing so, solidifying it. So the teaching on emptiness uh, is the most ultimate teaching in deconstructing that objectivity, in dismantling that that the totally baloney uh, projection of objectivity there to, to its fullest length. But to get there is a little difficult. One has to train in steps. That's the reason why in, in Buddhism, 
we, in terms of our philosophical stand on who a person is, who I is, who something is, by extension, we, we begin with non-self non or no-self. And that's something universally accepted by all Buddhists. But what we mean by selfless differs. But nonetheless, they all contribute to dismantling, even to a certain extent, to whatever degree possible, that projected objectivity that's contributing to our afflictions. And one thing to remember is the whole project, the whole program of Buddhism is aimed at dismantling the stronghold of afflictions within us. That's something very assuring, very assuring about the path of Buddhism, the standard Buddhism, the practice of Buddhism. We have to always keep coming back to how and when, how and to what extent it is an antidote to the affliction. It could be an antidote in a very superficial way, in a little deeper way, or in the most, most thorough, ultimate way. Nonetheless, they are all teaching in that direction. So that's the reason why selflessness, though universally accepted, is then presented in these different shades, if you will, different degrees of how far you go in dismantling, dismantling the objectivity. But in the course of doing so, one has to be always careful that none of them, none of them, none of those levels of selflessness denies outright selfhood. None of them denies outright anything. All it is doing is refuting, denying the projected, exaggerated notion of some objectivity. And so long as some, even the slightest tinge of objectivity is left there, the room for afflictions to come back would always be there. But then one has to be so careful in going to that extent in such a way that one do not damage the conventionality of things, yet at the same time succeed in pushing the furthest and totally deny any inch, any tinge of objectivity. That's the reason why when we are able to push it to that way, it is so difficult to maintain the balance between affirming the conventionality, yet at the same time thoroughly, totally, just exactly, uh, squarely deny any, any tinge of objectivity, leaving no room whatsoever for any objectivity. It would almost seem like there's nothing. It's almost seem like we have drawn, it's almost seem like the, the, the replay of monks dismantling said mandala. <laughs> they create, create, and then nothing's there, right? So there's this danger. So that's why it has always to be drawn back to 
dependent arising. Things are dependently arisen. And because of that, they are totally, thoroughly lacking of inherent existence. So one has to come to such, such an understanding of the balance. And then once that is understood, it should not just merely remain in here, but has to be then integrated with the mind. So integrated with the mind to the, to the extent of becoming one taste with the mind. That's what the scriptures say. The, the ultimate bodhicitta, which is the, the Arya's, uh, wisdom of directly understanding emptiness. Since it has been trained for so long to reach such an extent, at that point, even before then, the mind would become totally ming, immersed or uh, mingled with that understanding to the extent of having become almost a, almost its nature. So being able to see things even within equipos or post equipos being able to relate to things in the light of being in, in the light of being inherently, lacking inherently existence. The mere sight of dependency is enough to remind them of its being lacking inherent existence. That's, that's what this line in the three principles where it says, at, at certain point without having to alternate but simultaneously, when you just see dependent arising, you are reminded of the emptiness. That's when the analysis has been. The, the, the analysis of the profound view is completed. That's when we'll be able to walk with emptiness, appearance, perspective to everything. Not deny anything, but at the same time, totally in sync with their empty nature. Oh, that would be a totally different spectacle. Mm -hmm. Are this real or not real or real or not real? <laughs> if we were to be put in that state, we would really struggle hard. Is it real or not? Am I dreaming or am I in a real state or what? But those areas, I have no problem with that. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, in this regard, one thing to remember is this teaching on selflessness, which eventually becomes one with emptiness. Eventually, at the Prasangika level, at the Prasangika, Prasangika Mahadimika level, when we speak of selflessness, we could as well be speaking uh, in terms of emptiness. But only if we speak of selflessness in the grosser term, then we'll be speaking of some lesser notion of lacking objectivity of one kind. But if, when we are speaking of selflessness in its ultimate form, then we are speaking in the same way as emptiness. So, all the schools of Buddhist tenets, except for the Prasangika Madhimika, with the, all the rest of the schools of Buddhist tenets, including 
in what do you call in the same tone in the in in in, in at the same in the same way as selflessness of person and and because of that all of these schools of buddhist thoughts when they speak of afflictions how they arise they speak the same language they speak the same language in that all the afflictions would be accountable to this gross grasping at self would a person and that can be only addressed by understanding the gross what would be gross from a prasangika madhyamika perspective gross selflessness of the person and all the afflictions arise from there so they do not differ in terms of the they do not differ in terms of their their position on what is affliction how it is generated and even the southern even the chitramatra and the sautantrika madhyamikas they don't have any any what do you call any additional thing to add on the afflictions do you buy with this what I, and that's the reason we heard about the prasangika madhyamika system having a, a uncommon unique uh, take on afflictions because theirs is unique none of the others have anything unique over among themselves or over each other because their take on the afflictions is the same but nonetheless they they say that the afflictions are all rooted in this wrong uh, conception of self selfhood person and that notion of selfhood is very different than uh, the notion of self as presented by prasangika madhyamikas in a uncommon way the reason for that is Chitramatras come up with an additional notion of things being merely mind. There is no subject-object duality and whatnot. But that doesn't have anything to do with afflictions. And likewise, the Prasangika, the Sautantika Matimikas, they may bring, they may come up with the additional notion of selflessness of phenomena in the form of things being. lacking true existence do not inherent existent even though that's a, an additional notion of breaking down objectivity but that has nothing to do with afflictions
So that's, that's not going to contribute to bringing any additional notion of afflictions. So I'll just throw it there for you to think, contemplate on this. How come they're bringing this whole new perspective here, but why doesn't this affect the world of afflictions in the way they present But at the same time, I'll maintain the extent that compared to all the rest of the philosophical schools, the, the presentation that they've the take, the position that the Prasangika Madhimikas bring is, is unique, is, is uncommon. And all the rest has only one. It's not that, likewise, Chitamatras have a unique take on affliction. No. I leave it at that. <laughs> but nonetheless, the, the question was about breaking down or dismantling the grasping of objectivity. And that is so in, 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 inextricably linked with afflictions. So that's why it is a very strong antidote. But so basically, in one's daily life, one has to kind of think, think of, or keep questioning who is, who is this, where is the anger? What is the anger aimed at? Who is that that's it is being angry about? And that's that questioning, that pushing will help in kind of disillusioning oneself of the taken for granted objectivity that is contributed to the affliction. So that's what I was meaning, meaning about it. Okay, we have already passed beyond the time. We'll leave it at there. And let's dedicate whatever merits we have.